Hey, everybody. Andy's just decided to ditch the show. <laughs> Through that, he says, I'm out of here. I don't. I want no part of this Sean Hyken. I from, have that uh, effect for report. some reason. Yeah, I mean, he's he said to me always, it's like, if the minute you put Hyken on, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sharing a screen with I accidentally closed the wrong tab. <laughs> that's right. Um, late night happy hour. Brian Kamenetsky, Andy Kamenetsky, of course, tonight joined by Sean Hyken, NBA reporter at Bleacher Report. And I'm going to write that down there just in case people have trouble seeing it. Um, Sean, thanks so much for coming on, man. We appreciate it. It's good to be on with you guys. This is fun. I, I like. I, it. You've you had a couple. You've been on for twenty-eight seconds. Yeah, whatever. I know. You have some. I know. I mean, you've had a couple of my friends of mine who have been on recently that I've tuned in for. So yeah, it seemed like a good time. You Such as who? Who did you enjoy? Well, uh, Siret is a friend of mine. I've known her for like eight or nine years or something since she was nineteen. And then Mirren's also a really good friend of mine. Yeah, we we refer to those people as gateways to Sean Hyken. <laughs> we we I'll also. Tell them- at that. Right. We, we also refer Fader. To, uh, I mean, she's she's okay at what she does. Right. I guess she's fine. But we refer like, to Sirit and Mirren as people we need to be good to because they eventually may be in the position to employ us. Like they're going places, and and we need. Oh, help. believe me, I'm, I'm the same. <laughs> like they, I mean, they're both really, really impressive. Yeah, because uh-huh. you know who, but, but, you know, you know, ten, fifteen years from now, it'll be like Sirit and and Mirren taking. All right, fine. We'll take pity on those sixty-eight-year-old you know, sports writers. Or right. um, they need, you know, they look like they need a job. Um, is that Neil Pert behind you? It is. Nice. I growing up, I I played drums growing up. There, yeah, I, mean, I did too. Yo, did you? Did yeah. you? So, I mean, you you That's then know means. what it's yeah. like to try to master the Neil Pert fills and like the the technical precision. That was that Canadian uh, national treasure. I was never quite able to. Well, I mean, I, don't beat yourself up. Not Sean. that any, most not that, not that most people were, but look, I mean, I can't speak for you. I nailed them all. <laughs> I got them every all. Every single one. Every single one. Not not just that first try. Every nice. single one of them just got them down pat. But it nice. really was kind of a rite of passage for like young male drummers. Like you have uh-huh. to learn how to play Tom Sawyer. Yeah. Like you have do you have to do that whole quick sixteenth note thing and you know Look, get the, all those the quick sixteenth with the one wrist was like that that was that was what tripped me up because like my just like you know it was never really like like flexible enough to be able to do it but like the the fills and stuff I actually could get okay but it was like the the just the consistent the pound like this you know that 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 was a little bit harder for me. Yeah, the I, most fun I found playing. Oh, go ahead, I was going to say the most fun I think I ever had playing drums with Rush was Spirit of Radio. Spirit of Radio uh, was a really fun song to play along with. That one I actually was able to get. YYZ I was able to get. I actually was able to get La Villa Strangiato at one point. Ooh. But that, now that, the, these are some uh, deep cut that's Rush a deep, instrumental. That's a deep cut. Uh, that's, La Villa Stradiago is not easy for drums. And it's like nine minutes long. Yes. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta have a little bit of, uh, you gotta have a little bit of endurance for that one. Now, yeah. I mentioned this before because like my, and I've never quite been able to totally reconcile this. Like, I, I'm like if this was normal or not, I mean, cause keeping in mind, I'm like 10 at the time when then, you know, 10, 11, 12, my uh-huh. two favorite bands growing up were Rush and Duran Duran. Okay. Like, does that fit? Like, does that make sense to people? Like, can you I put those two things together? It's not as weird as 
you would think it does on is on paper. Okay. Because I mean, some of the I mean, obviously, like the seventies rush stuff that's like you know twenty one twelve and hemispheres and all these like twenty minute long sci fi epics or whatever. Like that's 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 this one thing. But like the stuff they did in the eighties was like it was a little bit weirder than some of like that pop stuff that was on the radio. But you know, there were heavy keyboards. It's not like it's not that. Far I was off going off. to say the commonality is the synthesizer. Yeah. And, and like I've actually it, I've actually been revisiting a lot of eighties synth lately, uh-huh. and like. You, it's really easy, I think, to maybe overlook just like basically the 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 creativity that went on yeah. with eight with synthesizers in the eighties and some of the stuff that they were doing. It's they made really really cool use of you know at the time it mm. seemed like kind of primitive, yeah. But you listen to it now, it's actually more I think creative and more impressive than I, than I recognized in the moment. Yeah. A lot of that, a lot of that stuff actually holds up pretty well. And actually, I, I don't know if you guys have seen the rush uh, documentary. No, that it's on, it's on Netflix. You guys should check it out. It's really good. It's like a whole overview of their career, but it was one guy that I think was really interesting that talked in that was uh, Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails who, you know, when they got to the keyboard era, there were all these kind of like, you know, guys who were like, you know, they were interviewing like all these like heavy metal guys who were fans of Rush in the 70s. And they were all like, oh, they sold out with the keyboards. And then you had Trent Reznor in there being like, no, you know, they were a rock band that was like doing the keyboard thing in a different way that that was interesting to me. So, you know what? Though? I just, I, they were around for a really, really long time. And I just, yeah. I think you can't, you can't do it the same way no. for 30 years. I mean, like, Unless you gotta try something else. Well, the other thing too, though, is in the '80s, like for groups that were considered either metal or hard rock, like in that genre, <laughs> uh-huh. just the use of keyboards was right. very controversial. Like Eddie Van Halen busting out the keyboards for yeah. jump, like that that pissed off a lot of people. Like it, it got him like best keyboard player of the year. I, like in, he won that for the Rolling Circus Stone, Magazine Stone sure it, yeah. I'm sure like it did. I years was, in a uh, row. I've been I was I revisited some of the Van Halen stuff pretty recently ever since he died like a couple months ago. But and yeah, like some of this, I I think if I remember correctly, I think it was Roth that was really like that. That was like part of the reason Roth left was he was just like, I don't want to do this keyboard stuff. <laughs> I want to sing just a gigolo like a I purist. Mean, well, Eddie Van Eddie Van Halen was just I mean, he was Eddie Van Halen. Like, yeah, but like I, I do want to say, yes, we all did get the memo to wear black. Um, yeah, <laughs> we all did coordinate to be bald. No, we, you know we what? That's to... actually just a recent thing for me, too. This is like okay. within the last couple of weeks, I did this. Are because... you, are you by choice or, yeah. uh, well, okay. uh, I guess sort of by choice. Like, I've never been like against it. I kind of realized that one day my time is going to come and that I mean, I was kind of <laughs> prepared for it, but like I saw in the mirror like two weeks ago that like I had a little bit of a Manu Ginobili situation going on up here and i was just like i should probably just give it up so you got way ahead of it good for yeah. you good well for i mean you, i've already Sean like Ryan. i don't know if you can kind of see the outline here but like yeah. the hairline is like a little bit like and it looked okay still but it was definitely starting to get back through but when i saw the huge bald spot on the top i was just like okay no but that's the right move i respect not everybody does it early most people wait too long you i don't know, think you... it looks bad no, no it doesn't and it's liberating Damn yeah. it. Like it, it's liberating to lean into your future, essentially, and, ju- and just ride that wave. It's a little bit of an adjustment of just how to, because like I, for the first week that I, I've, I've had it for like two weeks now. And so for the first week, I was just doing it with the clippers. 
and just and just kind of basically just like buzzing it all the way. But then it's only within the last like few days or so that I've actually started doing it with the razor. And so that's a little bit of an adjustment of like making sure you get all of the. This has been hair talk on the late night happy hour. <laughs> no, but like I, I just, you, you have to understand. Like, look, I, I started losing for to let people behind the curtain. Does anybody out there want to guess when I first noticed that my hairline was receding? I'll take comments on the chat board. Andy knows the answer, obviously, because he's my brother. But I mean, Sean, I'll take I'll take a guess from you. Anybody out there want to throw out when they think I first noticed that I was losing my hair? So this is tricky because then I have to give an age and I, I don't want to seem I will like not, I don't want I it to seem offended. like I don't want it to seem like, oh, I think that, you know, you did it at this age. and This was this long ago. And so now I think you're this like, no, I'm 45. I mean, like, I, OK, you're 45. I, okay, I will okay. say I've looked like this for a long time. True story. I looked 45 when I was 22. And now I actually 30, think I just look 45. 33. Oh, from your lips God to God's you, ears. <laughs> oh man, that would have been brilliant. What? <laughs> so so far, Ahmad Ahmad Yusuf um 13. is 13. Okay. He's closer than you, Sean. <laughs> okay. <laughs> By a lot. Okay. Um Donald is closer at 16. I was, I believe it was it was junior year in high school. Okay. So that would have been 17. That's very early. So, I mean, granted, I I had it was it was too. Early. I didn't know what to do. But most most guys wait too long, and they they fuck around with it and they try to yeah. you know avoid. Nope. And I, I have just, deep respect for the move you've made here. Yeah, I mean, I'm I mean, I'm 31 now, and I just I held on as long as I could. See, like I I was disappointed because there was a period where it seemed like you know like it runs in our family like the only male cousin we have on the on the side of the family that determines at least according to what we know uh, hair loss he lost his hair at a very young age in my thirties like you know mid thirties and that I I still had a lot going and it seemed for a second like it was going to maybe skip me and then all of a sudden man it yeah. hit hard. But Brian, I have to say, Brian actually helped give me the confidence to lean into the moment of recognizing, all right, dude, you just have to accept what's going on and just go with it and not nothing fight you can this. Do. You can't There's fight nothing. it. If you but fight at, it, it looks worse. But look at this, Sean. Like, this was me in my mid, like, mid-ish Every 20s. time he does this, it's okay. just an excuse to show yes, it is. The old yes, picture. it is. But look at this, Sean. Oh, wow. I know. Wow, you know. wow. You got a wow from, from hiking. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, look at that. Yeah. I was never quite I, I never quite had that. Oh man. Look at that. Look at that Michael Hutchins I had going. It was wonderful. <sighs> Terrible so, bass player, but a good head of hair. I was an awful bass player. <laughs> God. I could play drums. I was a god-awful bass player. Like, I don't even know why I attempted to try it, but Oof, I don't either. Just uh, terrible. <laughs> anyway, so um, you have had the. I also wanted to point out my first concert. Just to wrap up this rush kind of thing, Power Windows. That's so, that's my favorite rush. I had, album, actually. I had a tour for a, the shirt for a while. Power Windows is your favorite rush album. Yeah, I kind of am partial to. I mean, I think it's all good, but like I'm kind of partial to the mid '80s. That like Grace Under Pressure signals like that era. So so like the more. I, I guess kind of commercial mainstream, like the less the I, less weird. So you're a sellout too. I mean, I like all. I mean, I like all that's. I mean, I like all of it. No, I mean, no, I, no, I, no, I no, think, no, no. I you can't go backtrack to the hardcore stuff. The 90s, it kind of got hiking. a little bit. 
the nineties, I think it got a little bit shaky for them, but I bet your only complaint was they weren't using enough keyboards in the eighties. <laughs> no, because see, I think hold your fire it went a little bit too. In the same way, <laughs> way Neil Pert used to surround himself with like three hundred drums and like yeah. literally no way he could play all of them. Like, he actually not- did them. I, I I need to see video evidence. Like I, you want to see, no, like he really did. Actually, he, he really did. Out there. <laughs> he um did. Did you ever watch uh Sean Freaks and Geeks? Oh yeah, that's my favorite it, TV show of all time. It's it's so great. It's I just so great. rewatched it uh at the be. This feels like two years ago now, but like in the you know middle of March, this COVID thing first started to hit, and it, I was just like, I don't, I you know, I'm stuck inside. I got to figure out something to watch and that was one of the first things i pulled out i hadn't seen it in a couple of years it, it's so great but the reason i bring that up is jason siegel's character nick yeah was a drummer and he just keeps adding insane <laughs> amounts of pieces to his drum set even though he really isn't that good like he's got that he has that one audition with the local like the the hot yeah, local he was band terrible. <laughs> yes he's terrible but like he's got he's got like a 21 piece <laughs> and then one day he like comes home and his dad like sold it Oh, because he's like grades weren't good enough. <laughs> you know, it it's funny. I remember when that show it only lasted one season. Brian and I yeah. were both huge fans of it. And yeah. I remember being it's a crime, hit. still a crime that that thing was canceled after a year. It is though, but there's also a part of me though that is a little bit glad that it was because it managed to stay perfect. Yeah. By virtue of never going along too far or anything. Like there's a part of me that wanted to see what happened next and and what the, what these characters became and you know what the rest of high school was like and maybe even yeah. a little bit of college but man you don't you don't see any drop off on that show did you ever ever watch undeclared which was the follow up yeah yeah one? like and it's like it's got some of the same it's not the same characters but it's some of the same actors like Seth Rogen is in it a couple yeah. of the other, like you know supporting guys from freaks and geeks are in it i watched that years ago when i first watched freaks and geeks i think back in high school and I remember like it also being pretty good. But then after I watched Freaks and Geeks during quarantine back in March or April, I watched I tried to watch Undeclared again. And after the first couple episodes, I was just like, this isn't that good. Yeah. It's not nearly I as good as I don't remember it. Which is you don't need to go back and uh you don't need to go back and revisit it. It's it did not, bring the world Charlie Hunnam, though. So there you have it. Yeah, I, you know what? I, I don't. I, I, I now had become so consumed by the fact that we we're all wearing the same outfit that I, tried, <laughs> that I took off. I my don't jacket. think we are. Mine is the. Remember the crying Jordan face when that was first like a thing. This yeah. is like an art rendering of that that I it's, bought. It's hard to see it. Like we all just look like we're Throw wearing down. black shirts. And so I, I tried this, and I'm not sure it really helps that much. But um, all right. So we you you were up in Portland and uh-huh. um. You you have been able, you know, you were actually in, in the building to watch some preseason. Yeah. Andy and I both love what those guys did up there. And, you know, remembering that two years ago, so what, you don't have to go back far, you know, to see the, the Blazers as a as a legitimate contender in the West. Where do they where do they fit? And then, you know, if the Lakers are the presumptive uh, favorites in the West. What other team is out there other than, I guess, the Clippers? That's the other team that everybody talks about that you think actually can make a run to the top of the conference. I mean, does Portland have a shot? I think they have a shot as much as anybody has a shot in terms of. I think I think it's pretty clearly, and I'm not talking about the seed because 
I no. think there's a good chance the Lakers don't get the one seed this year because they're not going to try in the regular season. But I, I, when we're talking about actually making a playoff run, it's the Lakers, and then there's like a pretty decent gap, and then there's everybody else to me. Because I mean, they won the title, and then they got better, at least on paper. But uh, I think it's like I think the Clippers are probably still number two. I like the Ibaka addition for them. I still think they need another point guard. But you know, I think Denver's still pretty good. I think Utah's going to still be pretty good. We forget they didn't have Bojan Bogdanovic in the bubble, and you know they brought back Derek Favors. Like I think they're going to be pretty good. Uh, and then Portland, I think, is right in there. Dallas, I would like more if Porzingis was going to be playing the whole year, but I think Luke is also just so good that it might not matter. But those are the five or six that I think I have sort of in that. Uh, Luke is so great, he's tempting fate by being fat. <laughs> you know what? I'm I'm into it because like I had like I, I'm not I don't think I'm the only one that's wanted this for a while, but I've wanted fat LeBron for a long time. And I don't know <laughs> I don't know if we're ever gonna get it in the NBA. What does that look like? Like I don't how know how fat does LeBron have to get to be fat LeBron? I need LeBron to be coming out looking like big baby and still just like making these incredible passes and just doing like and I kind of feel like this like this version of Luca that we have. Did you see uh his quote? Yeah. today where he where he's like yeah i'm not in great shape but i've never been the most athletic guy so i'm just working my way back and i'm just like this dude's 21 and he's already that self-aware i i remember lebron's first season with the lakers you know he had that uh groin strain that it was the longest he's ever been out with an injury right, right, right. And, and when one of his first practices if not his first that the media was allowed to to see we were in there and you know we're, we're at the tail end of this thing and LeBron is, as he often does, practicing shirtless. Of course, and it, it just like I've seen don't that many times. Yeah, yeah, he, he always is, and I don't blame him. If I if I looked like that, I I wouldn't own a shirt. I wouldn't own them. He's but, very good at knowing when the cameras are going to be around. Oh yeah, yeah, he's it's not his first day. But I remember watching this, and like you know, this was LeBron really had, by all accounts, not been practicing and not really been doing a whole lot certainly by his standards during that period. And I remember looking at that going like, that's his version of dad bod. And he's got, <laughs> he's, he's ripped. He's ripped with a six pack. And that's like LeBron letting himself go. Like it just like, it, it was makes obscene. You just, it yeah. was obscene. Well, yourself. I, f I forget where I read this. It might've been Maverick Carter that said this. It was one of either, it was either rich or Maverick or like one of his guys that said this and either in some interview or something, but, LeBron spends $1.5 million a year on his body, whether that's massages or different physical therapy or different stuff that he does. But like, that's how much he, and I mean, I, I, when you break it down, I'm sure he has like the best trainers in the world, the best nutritionists in the world. Like when you break it down, that's probably how much you have to spend to be in as good of shape as he it's is. Also, by the way, the equivalent does. with his income of my $10 a month gym membership at planet fitness. <laughs> right. <laughs> but. Right. But like that's, I, so that doesn't surprise me at all that even when he has this groin injury and he's not going hundred percent, he's still in better shape than most people are going to ever uh, be in their entire lives. Uh, the Nathan Mark points out. Remember, Kobe had the proper dad bod a year or so after retiring. Kobe was like yeah, legit chunky. He yes. kept he kept he kept himself in like the incredible Kobe shape up until the second that he retired. And then it's like the, <laughs> next, the next day, just you know what though, I I didn't blame him at all, man. Because oh, no. we, I mean, when you work as hard as he did for right. twenty years and play through all the injuries. Like once you don't have to do that anymore, once you don't have to take the no, pain and a, yeah. put yourself through the stuff anymore. Yeah, I'm just I'm chilling. Have a goddamn. <laughs> chicken finger you know I mean, we, we saw up close like how hard he worked what was funny though is 
And I don't know how many people know this. A lot of Kobe's career, by his own admission, he ate like shit. Like he was a professed junk food, junk food guy, aficionado. Like he he ate really really bad. And I'm sure, like you know, there was some. It wasn't like Lamar Odom's candy thing was like legit. Like Lamar yes, Odom ate candy all the goddamn time. But like Kobe, like I think, like to talk up. I mean, when he came in the league, he was eating McDonald's. I remember walking into like my one of my first NBA locker rooms and Darius Miles was eating a Big Mac like a half hour before a game or something. <laughs> like, who does this? But apparently that was pretty common. They'd just run the guys up to uh, the McDonald's up on the concourse and they'd come back. But, you know, it, you know, Kobe eating bad probably was a little different than like the rest of us doing. But by his right. standards and by pro athlete standards, yeah, he ate like shit. Well, because you just expect these guys to just only eat the most, you know, wet. Like, like there's this whole thing of, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, Chris Paul made a whole thing about how he switched to being vegan. And then since then, he's been a lot healthier. And there's been a couple of other guys who have like, I think Damian Lillard did that for a while. I'm not sure if he's still doing it. But didn't, didn't Mello? A few guys. I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened with Mello. Mello came into the bubble like down like twenty or thirty pounds, and he was you know because he's been hoodie Mello and Olympic Mello. He was talking about how he's skinny Mello now. That was like the thing they were talking about. Did he keep the weight off like over the break? I he looks okay. I mean, I was we were pretty high up in the arena the other night, but he looked okay. He he still looks like he's in pretty good shape. Like they're only shooting him from certain angles now. Right. Put a little weight back on. Maybe maybe yeah maybe yeah. He he brought the braids back though from dead from the Denver era. Interesting. Nice. Yeah. How much is he going to play this year with the new guys that they put in? I think he well so far he's been and this is with roughly their full rotation guys played fewer minutes. The mm-hmm. last, the first two preseason games, just because they, you know, it's preseason and who cares. I think Melo's going to be their sixth man. It, you know, because he started, he started last season and he was, you know, for what the expectations were, he was pretty good. He was their third scoring option behind CJ and Dame. And then this time, I think he's, and especially like, like he comes in the first game, immediately he drains a corner three and he was still just like taking guys off the dribble with a jab step and the mid range and all this stuff. He's going to just be able to eat against other teams' second units because he's oh, still yeah. like he has that old man savvy now, where he's, you know, he's not the same, you know, type of like athlete that he was early on in his career. But now he's like, he's kind of got that like old man game and he can still get to his spots and get his shot off. So you put him in. Terry Stotts actually said last night that he kind of sees Mello as being the power forward version of Lou Williams. So I think that's how they're going to use him. You know what? Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to the day when they refer, they stop calling it old man game and just call it fat LeBron game. Sure, yeah. That's you what fat LeBron game is going to be. Just yeah. one dude kind of standing still, putting up buckets and making like no look passes to everyone. And you know what? Actually, a dialogue that I'm trying to start is what if Melo won six man of the year this year? I was just about to ask you that. I retweeted somebody bringing that up. Maybe it was you. Maybe. Yeah. I've been trying to start the dialogue and further the agenda. I think that would be so awesome if if that ended up happening. Just, I mean, when you, when you take into account everything that's led up to yeah. Mello ending up in Portland and the resistance that he had to playing off the bench in OKC and in Houston, and how much he seems to really love being in Portland, and how much he seems to just love this culture, and and for him to win that type of award, I I think that'd be an awesome story. I would love to see that happen. Well, it's been interesting to watch over the, at least up close, but since he's been here over the last couple of years that, you know, because it really seemed like after 
he got traded to Oklahoma City. It, they were pretty good in the regular season, but it wasn't a great fit. And then obviously the Houston thing was a disaster. It kind of seemed like, especially after nobody picked him up for a year after that, it kind of seemed like he was going to go out like Allen Iverson, where he was like yeah. randomly in Memphis and then he went back to Philly and he flamed out after like three games or whatever. And now it turns out now, you know, he might kind of go out closer to Vince Carter, where he reinvents himself as a role player and he's actually okay with it. I think a big part of why it worked out in Portland was because a, he doesn't have to be the first option anymore because they have Damon CJ, but also he became okay with coming off the bench. I think because he saw how much all of the guys in that locker room still respect him and look up to him. And right. cause like I've talked to Dame about this. I've talked to CJ about this. Those guys, like, because Dame's about around my age. I talked to him about this. I did, I did a story like around the time that Mello first signed here in November or whatever of last year, and uh, Dame was telling me that when he was in eighth grade was when him and LeBron were coming out of the draft, and like, it's hard to remember now because LeBron is like one of the three greatest players of all time. But uh, LeBron or Mello, who should go number one, was a debate at the time, and Dame oh, yeah. was telling me like. I was a mellow guy because I saw his run at Syracuse. I thought mellow was going to be a better pro. I thought he was like, so like Dame grew up like idolizing mellow. And so the idea that, you know, mellow comes in at his age, he's way past his prime, but he's still good enough that he can contribute. And Dame, you know, then this is kind of the, the way that he's always kind of been able to handle different guys coming in with different egos and different, whatever, kind of as the franchise player, Dame was able to say, look, you know what? Mello still, even though he's not the, you know, the face of the franchise, he still wants to kind of be treated as a star and be treated as important. You know what? I'm psyched to have Carmelo Anthony because he was my childhood hero. So if he wants to be seen as like, you know, one of the, one of the primary guys in terms of how guys look at him in the locker room, it's cool with me. I'm not threatened by it at all. And I think that's a big part of why it worked. And actually Mello said that, you know, he re-signed this time. They talked to him about coming off the bench before he re-signed. Given how he played last year, I think if he was just set on starting, he probably would have had other teams interested in him. But he decided, no, I like it here. He actually moved his family out here during the pandemic instead of going back to New York. Maybe that was just because it was going, you know, it got bad really early in New York in terms of right. COVID. But, you know, he, Lala and the their son came out here. So... You know, it's just mellow, and you know, we, I, we, I, I want to. We should talk a little bit about Dame too, just because. Yeah, he's awesome. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the mellow thing is interesting. It's like the the backlash against him. You know, he's. I mean, we all know what Carmelo Anthony's shortcomings are. Is like, right. and we know he is not the. He's not one of the top five players who ever. Whatever, but like, right. is Carmelo Anthony a Hall of Famer? It's like. Yes, he's like one of the transcendent scorers of any era. Yeah. Like the, the idea that he like that Mello isn't a walk in the Hall of Fame as soon as they let him guy. In the same way that, you know, look, I get it, Dwight Howard. Yeah, um the other one. You know, is is a guy with some flaws, you know, personally and you know and on the floor. If he had quit before he ever got to the Lakers, he was a Hall of Famer. He was yeah. already in it before he got here the first time. It's like the, the people just like Go look at the people who are in the Hall of Fame and then tell me, you know, you don't have to be the best one ever to be in it. And like the idea that Mello isn't a Hall of Famer, give me a fucking break. Come on. So I have a couple of theories as to why the backlash is what it is. I think one of them is more just kind of the obvious. He's so good and he plays in such a different way in the Olympics versus how he plays in the NBA. 
that everybody during his career was like, well, why doesn't he just play like that all the time? And then they sort of hold that against him. And then I think the other one is that at two different points in his career, both when he forced the trade to uh, New York and, you know, he, he, uh, he could have just waited. He was going to be a free agent. He could have just waited and just signed with them as a free agent. They would have had the cap space. They wouldn't have had to give up Gallinari and, uh, like right. I forget who else was in the Wilson like a million draft picks. They wouldn't have had to give up half their team to get him. The team probably would have been better if they had just, if he had just waited until that off season and signed, but he wanted to get traded there in order to get the bigger extension. And then the second time was when he was a free agent in 2014. And this was back when I was in Chicago and I was still on the bulls beat. The bulls went pretty hard after Melo, And this was when they still had Derek Rose and Joakim Noah and, all those guys like Jimmy Butler was like a rising star and they couldn't offer him quite the max. They could, they were like a few million dollars short and he really came close to signing in Chicago. He really wanted to go there. Like Tom Thibodeau recruited him. They had a relationship from team USA, Like he came close to signing, but they couldn't get there with the money. And so he signed, resigned with the Knicks and got the, you know, got the max from the Knicks. And so I think the fact that at two different points in his career, he had to choose between, a more winning situation and more money. He chose more money, which I'm not begrudging him that I'm not knocking that. I'd probably do the same thing if I was in but his it's position. A choice, but the fact that, and especially that like, that was all like right after for right. as much backlash as LeBron, Bosch and Wade all got when they went to Miami, those three all took slightly less than the max so that they could resign Udonis Haslam and so they could sign Mike Miller and a couple of those other guys. Right. And so I think people just kind of saw Mello from that point as, this is a guy who, uh, you know, cares more about the money than the winning. And also the fact that he forced his way out of a pretty good Denver team to a Knicks team that like they had just signed Amari Stoudemire. And so they were pretty good that year, but the Knicks hadn't been good in a long time. And so I think there was also the perception that he cares more about being in New York and being in a big market. And then, so I think over time, all that stuff just kind of added to it, especially the, then you'd add on to that the fact that... Right, and those teams don't do well and he becomes right, and like they, a, they make the conference title that one year in, in Denver in 09, but then after that, they, his teams don't really do anything, and so then it becomes he's not a winning player, even though which of those Knicks teams like had a roster that was a winning roster? None of them. The one that had 50 the one that had, Yeah, <laughs> that one, but like other than that one, and even that one, like I think that team was probably not as good as their record, but like... Yeah, it's an interesting thing when I mean, because obviously these guys have a finite window in terms of maximizing their, you know, their monetary value. And, you know, it's it's stupid, crazy money that they're making, but it's still their opportunity. And what what I think is interesting about it is just like, it's ultimately a choice, and some, not everybody gets to choose both. Like I remember years ago, and it's a, it's a, it's a totally different scale of choice, but it's the same concept. Uh, when Josh Powell was with the Lakers, oh, and yeah. he, you know, people he was forget a, Josh Powell was a bucket. Yeah, <laughs> with, the, with the steam face. <laughs> but, you know, he was he was a deep reserve, uh-huh. but he loved being part of that team. He was loved by his teammates. Like he was one Kobe, of Kobe's. Kobe's loved yeah. Josh Kobe Powell. like really respected the hell out of Josh Powell you know because he just whenever he came in he was always ready he played hard as hell like he did whatever it was asked of him and he was part of two championship teams but he wasn't getting much run and he had a career to think about and I remember during one of his exit interviews asking him how he weighs winning which he really cared about winning 
uh-huh. versus money and opportunity. And he said this, and I remember it, it struck me as really profound. He just said, everybody wants to win, but not everybody gets to win. And and it's, again, it's different in the case of somebody like Josh Powell, who's just trying to carve out an NBA career for as long as he can, versus a guy like Mello, who has way more options in front of him and, you know, frankly, way more talent. But you still don't always get to make the exact choices that you this want. Is, I mean, this is Dame. Like, this I mean, is Dame. the odds are Dame is not going to win a title. Probably not. In his career. I mean, maybe they get like really. I mean, that they almost they did make the conference finals a couple of years ago. Maybe they have a run like Dallas in 2011, where they aren't the favorite team, but some stuff breaks their way, and they're you know if Nurkic was is healthy, and they you know they could have another run like that. It could happen. It's not outside of the realm of possibility. It's very unlikely, but. And this is something I've heard Dame talk about many times before is that let's say he forces a trade to, you know, pick the Lakers, the Warriors, the Miami, whichever one of these teams, there's no guarantee that you win there either. And then, you know, even if you do win there, you're just, uh, you know, you're just another guy that left his team and won. And whereas, you know, if he, if he ends up staying in Portland and he never wins a title, they're going to retire his jersey here. He's going to probably get a street named after him. He's going to get a, probably a statue outside of the Rose Garden. Like He's going to be Reggie Miller in Indy where he never won a title either, but he's untouchable. And the other point, I think this was I think this was on some podcast that he was on like a year ago. I wish I could remember who so I could give it credit for where I heard Dame say this, but Gary Payton, the Sonics in the 90s, never won a title. Later on in his career, Gary Payton won a title as part of the Miami team in 06. But now that he's been out of the league for a long time, he's been retired. When you think about Gary Payton, the only Gary Payton you think about is him with the Sonics. And that's the thing that actually sticks with people. And that's what matters. Right. So I think that's kind of the perspective that Dame has on it. Well, it's just funny, too, because basketball, basketball more than any sport is one where like you just are a victim. You're either a victim or a, a beneficiary of your timing yeah. to like one guy like, you know, if you you're Carl Malone and John Stock, you came along and you you ran into Jordan. Like, what do you do about that? As soon Jordan leaves, Hakeem wins. I mean, two, I don't, two titles. It's it is astonishing the bad luck that the Stockton Malone teams had. Just in terms of era, they had not just the Jordan Bulls. They had parts of the Showtime Lakers. They had the back to back Rockets with with Hakeem. They had the Duncan Spurs. Like all of those teams. And, they and lost they had the, and they a had couple the, times in that in that era right. too, with, with and, like the, when it was right. like Damon Sotomayor and Sabon. And they had the Kobe Shaq Lakers too. Yeah, like all of those teams were there for Stockton Malone. Like if they had just played ten years earlier or maybe ten years later, like started up, they likely would have right. won I mean, at least like, one championship. Like, yeah, but, go ahead. But then the other part is that you know for the last year of his career before he retires, Carl Malone signs a minimum deal with the Lakers to ring chase and they almost win the title. Even if they won the title, they lost that year to Detroit, but even if they won that title, yes, Carl Malone retires with a ring, but nobody's going to think of him as Lakers legend, Carl Malone. They're going to think about him with the jazz all those years. Right. But I mean, and what's funny is like Malone played well, like that was, he was not like, you know, the 11th guy on the bench along for the ride. Like he he was was a very productive member of that team. Uh, But Look at the just NBA titles get concentrated in the hands of individual people 
Yeah. Um, in ways that it just doesn't happen in other sports. It doesn't happen that way in baseball. It doesn't happen that way in football. But like LeBron James just sort of hoards these things. LeBron and, in the East, and, and until now, it was LeBron in the East. And then for the last few years, it was the Warriors in the Warriors West. Warriors in the West. Yeah, and for and like the just, last, there's nothing you can do about it. For like the last yeah. 25 years, it's basically Kobe, Shaq, Duncan, LeBron, Wade, and Steph have hoarded all of these championships. Yes. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's it's like what Brian was saying. You can really distill it down to about like 10 or so players who really matter. And that's the – I think, Sean, that's the interesting thing about Houston. Uh, we can talk about Harden here. Yeah. Um, is that, you know, in some ways, like they're, they're this conversation. Like they did better against those Warriors teams basically than anybody except LeBron did when he beat them. Um, and, but they just weren't better than that. But nobody was better than that. If that Rockets team, the 2018 team, the year that Harden won MVP, if they had hit three or four of the 27 three-pointers that they missed in a row in the fourth quarter of that game seven against the Warriors, I think they beat that Cavs team because that that Cavs team was just kind of like LeBron drag. Like that team got swept by the Warriors. They win the title, and they were just looking at it totally different. I think that team was good enough to win the title. And, you know, Chris Paul was out in that series. I had been saying that whole year that I thought that that Rockets team was going to win the title. That team was good enough to win the title. They just didn't, and that happens sometimes. So where where does he go? Like, because I, mean, I, I was listening to the, uh, <laughs> but I was I was listening to I think it was was Zach Lowe was yeah. talking about it on his on his podcast. Like the the thing like he's obviously James Harden is James Harden. I know people don't like. I love him. I I think he's incredibly fun to watch. He huh. drives people nuts. I get that, but. He also plays in, you know, I, I I forget exactly how Zach described it, but like in like James, the James Harden universe where everything just sort of revolves around him. And like he can't go somewhere and play the same way. So where does he go? And, and then how does that team play once he gets there? That's the problem with these ideas. I mean, you can on paper put together their various teams that have trade packages where you can say, okay, this makes sense. The salaries match. It's like a reasonable amount of talent going back. But then it's like, let's say Miami trades for him. You have him and Jimmy Butler together. Like how's that going to work? I think this Brooklyn stuff is kind of weird too. Unless, and this is, you know, keeping your third eye open here. <laughs> is this already Durant being done with Kyrie? Because that's if the Durant, only way that they traded Kyrie for. I mean, keeping in mind now they have two point guards. Whatever, forget this. Set all that aside. If Durant shipped Kyrie out as part of a James Harden deal, that would be both incredibly cold and completely awesome. Well, it would be hilarious because we are kind of are already starting to see, and you know, this has been reported by different people that actually Durant is the one that really wants Harden there. And Kyrie is not that psyched about it because Kyrie likes to have the ball in his hands and Harden also needs to have the ball in his hands to function. I can tell you what team I want him to go to. This is putting aside whether it's, you know, they can put together a realistic trade because I don't, I don't think they can given what Houston is asking for. But I think just on so many levels, the Knicks are the team that he, that he should end up on because a like, First of all, Tibbs is going to let him ISO all day. Like that's <laughs> like from a basketball standpoint, it's it's going to work out fine. But then also, I think Harden is so good that in the East he can make any team a playoff team. 
And then the narrative around him becomes goes from Harden chokes in the playoffs like it's been for these years with the Rockets to Harden made the Knicks relevant again. And there's all this buzz in New York around Brooklyn right now. They're getting Durant back. He apparently looks inc- – I didn't see their preseason game last night, but he apparently looks incredible physically. Kyrie is saying all this weird stuff. Like, this is, like, the most intriguing team in the league. Now suddenly the Knicks have James Harden. Like, to take some of that buzz back. I know that, like, the Nets have been trying to get, you know, people to care about them in New York right. for a long time. It still probably isn't really going to happen because, I mean, I don't – I can't say I listen to a lot of – uh New York sports talk radio, but I'll bet that even with the Nets having Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, anything that the Yankees or the Knicks or either of the two football teams do is like way higher on the scale of what is of it. I mean, it's like with, with you guys in LA, it's like a Lakers Clippers thing. Even those years when the Lakers were terrible and the Clippers were contenders, it was still not close. And so absolutely finally, not even the, close. You know, finally, the, uh, the Nets have this team there. There's a lot of buzz around them. They've got Durant. They've got Kyrie. If Harden's on the Knicks, all of a sudden, like that's where the attention goes, and so that's going to kind of add to that rivalry. That's what I want to happen. I don't think they can like do a trade. What, there. Could, like, the, what could the Knicks put together that 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 Houston would take? I don't know. I mean, maybe Obi Toppin is incredible the first bit of the season, and it becomes like a Gallinari thing where you know he's in the mellow trade, and then you give him Barrett, and then you can make the money work with Julius Randle or whatever. I don't think they have. Enough, but the problem is, I don't think. I mean, the obvious guy that people have talked about is Simmons. But if I and I know that, like Daryl, you know, Daryl probably wants hard. But like, if I'm nope. him, I no. want to at least nope. see nope. what. Nope. I want right. to see what Simmons and Embiid look like together with, with spacing, because this is something Brian. This is something Brian and I've talked about a lot, like the in in terms of Philly, because they they've been fascinating to watch, kind of devolve over the last couple of years. This season, I think, will be really instructive in terms of letting it be known whether this is a matter of just they didn't have the right personnel, particularly last year when the spacing was really lacking, or if just for whatever reason, the two of them together just don't work the way they used to a couple of years ago, maybe because they both have ambitions that are kind of moving away from each other in terms of the way that they want to play. Maybe, you know, they're just, they're getting tired of each other. Like what, whatever it is, because a couple of years, it wasn't that long ago where you looked at them like, oh my God, what is the league going to do with them in like 2020 Yeah, where all of a sudden it seems like they can't play together. But now that they've got uh, Danny Green and Seth Curry, and I think Tobias Harris in, in a, potential position i think uh to be utilized better i agree with you i i want to see what it at least looks like but also too ben simmons is only 23 and he's already an all nba player right so it's like even if you think harden is better than him like the gap between harden and simmons i don't think is so big that you're throwing in three first round picks right. like it's being reported that that houston's asking for on top of Simmons. Yeah. Nope. Well, not what doing I'm that. interested in with the Sixers is, and I kind of, I kind of said this the right when they hired doc before Daryl even got there, but when they hired doc, the, uh, where, where my mind went was remember doc's first year with the Clippers when, uh, that was like Christmas, like half the season. And so Blake was basically their point guard that whole year. That was their best year. That was Blake's best year. I kind of want to see them use Simmons that same way. And I mean, this was before Blake became a good shooter. So the shooting isn't even like a weakness that 
he has compared to Blake. And, you know, Simmons is a better passer and defender than Blake ever was. And, you know, you have Embiid as kind of like a supercharged version, like a way more talented version of like what DeAndre was in that. And obviously that's maybe doing Embiid a little bit of a disservice, but I think that team could be pretty good. I just, I want to read you guys something from the Harden report today, the one from Woj and Ramon. The Harden report. (laughs) Well, yeah, you saw like this, the latest one today about how them trading for John Wall doesn't make him not still want to be traded. (laughs) <laughs> this is just my favorite paragraph from this. I've got I've got this up here. This is from the one from Woj and Ramona today. After detouring to social engagements in Atlanta and Las Vegas before reporting late for training camp last week, Harden has expressed to Rockets ownership and management his intention to be professional and engaged upon joining the team. Sources said, "Okay, like sounds great, dude. Yeah, I, after you've already spent two weeks like." partying with no mask on and breaking all the COVID protocols and not showing up to training camp and ghosting your coach and making him, you know, stand up there and answer questions about it in his first training camp after he grinded for 20 years as to be, to become a head coach. Now he's going to be professional. Now he's going to not be a distraction. I mean, somebody must've just said to him like, dude, do you want to get traded? I think he should be suspended. I think that he should not not for not for the not showing up to training camp because like I don't really care about that. The COVID, like, the COVID yeah, that's yeah. that's like we're right at the point now where, and I realize that you know the NBA probably shouldn't be playing in a pandemic. We you know all that stuff. I have read like their whole manual. I haven't read the whole thing, but I have the manual that they send out the 150 page manual. Well, Harden, Harden apparently has a copy that he well, hasn't right. read either. Well, right. But I have it. And like, they really put so much into taking the precautions. And like, you've talked to different guys, like a couple of the Blazers guys in the zoom call, a couple of different other teams have all said, yeah, you know, we're all kind of taking it seriously. You know, we're all trying to make this happen. And hopefully this is only for a few months and then everybody can get the vaccine. But it seems like most players, at least for the most part are taking this stuff seriously. And then you've got one of the biggest stars in the league just out there partying with no mask on and putting it all over. It's like, that's just, that's such a bad look. I think he it's should a, be. Like, it's a dick move. I mean, it's it like is. suspended, not suspended. Like, you know, to your teammates are at practice. To, it's just, it's a dick move. If you not just pretend your back hurts and just don't show up. It's, you fine. know, who I, you know, who I feel bad for here more than anybody. Silas. Yeah, Silas. Because yeah. so what was so here's here's the thing, and I uh, that I was not the only person that's made this point, but it's something that I've been thinking about a lot in the last week or so. What was the discussion around this entire cycle of coaching hires? It was not enough black coaches. Not enough. A not, a, enough a, not a, a not enough black coaches, but also like some of these assistants who have never been right. a head coach before, right. but have right. put in right. their time and are qualified for the job. Yeah. should get some of these opportunities instead of just hiring like the cycling through like the same white guys or whatever. Steven Silas has been grinding he's for been 20 years. Yes. He's put in his time. He's earned this opportunity. Yes. He's very well respected by pretty much everybody in the NBA world. Like he totally deserves this opportunity that he got. And so he finally gets a head coaching job. He finally gets a shot after 20 years of being an assistant. And the first thing he has to deal with is his star player ghosting him and basically not showing up and not telling him anything. And it's just like, he didn't sign up for that. He th- When he took the job, he thought he was going to be coaching Harden and Westbrook and he was going to have a chance to contend. And now the first thing he has to deal with is this. So yeah, I feel like the punishment, I feel like the punishment for Harden isn't even suspending him. It's making him play more. Like, like you make him actually have to be around the team more. Like right. you, you have longer practices. Like he he has to be a rocket more on a day-to-day basis than he otherwise would. Because I feel like if you suspend him, 
I mean, we've all, we've or, already, or Andy, what if it, what if it is you actually, you do the, the, the Sean Hyken plan and you actually trade him to the Knicks. Like that could be the punishment. <laughs> well, you know, but, I think he would be down though. I think he would enjoy being the face of the Knicks and everything that comes with that. You saw like the, in the same way that I think Carmelo embraced it, even though those teams were never contended. Didn't I he think, refer to the Rockets though, as the Knicks of the Southwest? I think that's unfair to James Dolan. <laughs> wow you can say a lot of things about james dolan and the different faults of his as an owner he has money that's true you don't have to like like when when, when, I, when I saw that harden you know turned down the two-year hundred million dollar extension who knows if it was not going to be like a the old remember the old dodgers owners that like had to sell the team <laughs> because they couldn't make payroll no, like, he, called, who, he called the rockets the knicks of the south right that's what i'm saying like who's yeah. who's to say that like if, if he had signed that extension you think tillman for sure would have been able to pay him that because i don't like he this is a guy like back in may windhorse reported this back in may he took out a 300 million dollar loan at a 13 percent interest rate in order to keep his businesses going and then <laughs> and like, the loan was from harden yeah well and then from <laughs> two, two months later he was at that uh that like restaurant owners association summit right. with the yeah. current uh, outgoing president making jokes about how much Harden and Westbrook make. Like that's the one thing Harden has going for him with this whole thing is like, usually I'm, I'm somebody like, I like it, you know, being here covering Dame, someone who hopes Giannis stays in Milwaukee. Ultimately, I like it when these guys stay in one place and these guys don't just like bounce from team to team every year. But even I can look at Harden's situation and look at, you know, the way that Tillman has kind of run the Rockets since he bought the team. I can't blame anybody for not wanting to play for that guy. Yeah. So that's the one thing Harden's got going for him. I just wish he wasn't out here partying, partying. with no oh, on during. Look, look, James, I, I, I can't. The check isn't going to clear, but I am telling you, I've called every manager of every Bubba Gump, and when you show up, <laughs> it's unlimited shrimp, and you don't pay a nickel, my friend. Like it is, I rolling out the carpet for you. At I want to. I want to see this list, by the way, of the approved because you, you know how they're like they're still working on like the approved restaurants in each city that players are gonna eat yeah. at. You know how in the bubble, all of the like restaurants that they could do from uh, delivery were all like Landry's. The approved ones in Houston are Mastro's, Willie G's, Bubba Gump Shrimp Company, Chart House, Saltgrass right. Steakhouse, and Bill's wow, you really Bar know all of these off the top of your head, <laughs> or are you just pulling up the Wikipedia? I just pulled it up off Google. <laughs> nice, but uh. <laughs> Like, yeah, like I just, I, if, if you're him, like that's, I can't blame anybody for not wanting to play for this guy, but I also just like, what do you mean? come on, look at here's how you knew. This is how you really knew that it was just this bad between Harden and the Rockets and, and probably yeah. for that guy. Wouldn't want to play for him. Smooth <laughs> looking man. Right Who wouldn't want to play for the author of Shut Up and Listen? <laughs> that seems like a, that seems like an owner that ever yeah. Look at that oh, guy. God. Uh, he's, and then, and then he also like, I, again, like I said, he's, you know, he was joking with the president about how he should have fired yeah. Daryl Morey for his tweet about China and joking. Like, like, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, it's a whole thing. You know what this Harden thing kind of reminds me of minus the COVID part, like the COVID thing is its own thing. And that's a whole other discussion besides just the star trying to force his way out and being a distraction and all this stuff is when Jimmy Butler decided he wanted to be traded from Minnesota and he just didn't show up to training camp for like a week because Tom wouldn't trade him. Tom, like, because, you know, Tom had, was with him in Chicago and, you know, he made like a kind of half-hearted attempt to trade him. And then after like a week of training camp, Jimmy finally shows up. And then the first day of practice, he goes and is like, he picks out the four, you know, end of bench guys and beats the other, you know, all the other starters 
in the practice. And then he goes right there and does the, and does the sit down interview with Rachel and talks about how he just wants to win. And like that he only cares about winning. This is that, but you know, now you add in, he's, he's violating the COVID. That's, that's the thing. Like, that's how you knew that Harden really wanted out because like for, for a comparison point, when Lou Williams had magic city gate and lemon pepper gate during the bubble. And you know, there's the, the video with him and Jack Harlow Jack Harlow put that out. Lou Williams didn't necessarily want that out. He just wasn't, I think, pressing enough or smart enough or aware enough or whatever to be like, dude, like delete that immediately. He didn't, he didn't vet uh, hip-hop yeah. artist Jack Harlow enough. <laughs> exactly. When James Harden's parting with a little baby, like he's like, okay, everyone's filming me, right? Like I want to make sure this is live, correct? Everybody's We're good. Just, just make sure everybody knows. You, you guys did include – you guys did include uh, – you added Tillman, right? Like you added Tillman with it's the, the, the exact, video. it's the exact just, opposite. Just make sure of you call me Rockets PR on the link for this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> make sure everybody, yeah. you know, just just like you know, make make, make sure Woj sees this. Make sure you know all the reporters. Uh, I think I will say uh, the, the the Harden question, the Harden Portland question is interesting, but uh, I'll get to that in a second. But uh, I uh, I do I do I do say I'm encouraged by the reaction to the hardened stuff for the most part being just how ridiculous it is. Because I remember, I mean, there's a whole segment of Twitter that, I mean, I'm somebody who's like, I think it's good that players are empowered and that, you know, there's all this stuff, but there is a segment of, of, you know, NBA Twitter and even like some media members who conflate player empowerment with, players should never be criticized for anything and never have any consequences for anything they do. And I remember this summer during the bubble, when Lou Williams had his thing where he went to magic city and you know, people were kind of saying, Hey, he probably shouldn't have done that. There was a whole segment of like reporters and other, you know, people in like the NBA Twitter media sphere who were like, well, you know what? Those wings are actually really good. You know, maybe he actually had a point going there and like basically trying to like galaxy brain it into, uh, it was actually okay that Lou Williams went to magic city during a pandemic. Nobody's doing that with this. Nobody's saying, Hey, you know, it's actually cool that Harden's doing this. I will say this. I think the, the part, there were two parts of that. The first part is like, he, you know, he shouldn't have been there, but the part, when it first came out, it was the dude was at the strip club and, you know, you're making it rain. And well, it's like, it's like what I think people learned was, oh, no, he really went to eat chicken wings. Like, you but then go- he didn't. that's not true, though. That's what it seemed like. But then did you see the, the L.A. Times, not any of their like their Lakers reporters, but like the Atlanta bureau chief of the L.A. Times actually did a story where she went and talked to some of the dancers who were working at Magic City. And apparently he was hanging out and having several drinks and getting, you know, tip- well, apparently you're, tip- already, you're already there. Well, right. But like, <laughs> I mean, I would, I would, I would at least like halfway get it. If he just like, he just went there to get carry out and then left. Like, and I, I understand that, you know, at the time, and I don't want to relitigate something that happened in July or whatever, but I, I understand that at the time, like, people were talking about how, you know, oh, he was at a strip club and there was, you know, there's going to be some people who are moralizing about that when they shouldn't be because that's, you know, it's something that there shouldn't be like a stigma. But I think it's more like I would have felt the same way about that whole situation if he had gone to eat wings at a wing stop. Like you still shouldn't go and sit down and eat in a restaurant during COVID. Like I haven't gone and sat down to eat in a restaurant since March and I'm not going to until I've gotten the vaccine. And I don't think it's too much to ask for these guys to do the same thing. Well, I mean, this is this is the part. Settle a bet for for us here because I, you saw obviously everyone has seen the Kyrie IG post, the Kyrie Katie thing where they're talking about posting up and this and that and whatever. And okay, 
There is, there is, and like Kyrie looks like Kyrie is speaking in like a, you know, like an outtake from, I I don't remember if it's about last night or like St. Almost Fire or whichever one of those movies where like there's the artist, he's surrounded by like sketches. He's got, you know, paintings in the background and he just referred to himself as an artist, um, you know, in this thing. Not the first time he's done that, by the way. You guys look at his podcast with Durant. Yeah. Um, the one where he said, like, what is a head coach, really? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like, I listened to that whole thing, and, like, all throughout it, he refers to basketball as the art form. And so, and, and them as artists and all this. So, so, like, there's a part of, like, there's a possibility that he's trolling people by setting that up and doing it. And he's not really talking with KD on the IG Live seriously about how many post-ups a game he's supposed to get. Andy thinks there's zero ch- percent chance that's that's actually what was happening. What do you think? I think Kyrie Irving says a lot of things. I don't know. I I think this idea that Kyrie Irving is a misunderstood genius who's actually you know smarter than all of us is just something that I I'm getting no. pretty I'm pushing back pretty strongly against. I think like, Kyrie is a very smart guy. I just don't necessarily know if he's smarter than all of us. I think I'm, 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 I have no reason to believe that Kyrie Irving isn't an intelligent human being. He's he, he odd. He way too much Illuminati stuff on Instagram. To me. <laughs> <laughs> Go there with you. Yeah. I mean, I know the flat Earth thing was technically a troll thing, but like, just uh, I don't know. Just, here's here's where I think it goes wrong for people like for like people like Kyrie is is. I, I 100% like, you know, the, the more than an athlete thing, the, the, the backlash against shut up and dribble, all of this stuff is what these guys are all correct. They are people yeah. and they are commodified and they are talked about like contract numbers and moved around. Like they are human beings in, in the same way. Like you don't define your plumber by him being a plumber. Like he's a person. It's only athletes because they're there for our, entertainment and make us feel better about our lives because our teams win that we just we don't care about that stuff the one thing that like there is a there are a, a, a line though i think Kyrie particularly struggles where you you can be more than an athlete you should be more than an athlete and you should demand that we see you as more than an athlete but you can't be dismissive of the sports part of it you can't be dismissive of the professionalism that you are being asked to to do as an athlete. You can't make that part unimportant because that's part of the reason we're interested. It's part of the reason you're it's the reason you're being paid. It's the reason that you have a lot of, you know, that you have your platforms in a lot of ways. And I think that's a part that some guys in Kyrie particularly really bump up against and why there's more backlash against him than there is against other people. I think that the reaction on both sides of this whole Kyrie thing has been pretty embarrassing, honestly, because on the one side of it, you have these sports writers who are like Kyrie Irving not doing this Zoom call with beat writers is an assault on the free press. Yeah, like we're covering on. national security or something, right? Like it's like being like being like this is what pays your salary, and the media is what drives interest. And like the, yeah, these slow people, down. People who are just like it's like it's like look, Kyrie didn't do a Zoom call. It's fine. You know, we'll we'll live. It's, it's whatever. But then on the other side, you have the like yes, go off, King. Like Kyrie Irving, like showing the, and it's like no, Kyrie is not like making a grand point about the 
injustices of society by again not doing a zoom call with beat no, writers it's fine no, he didn't like, want to do it <laughs> no he doesn't he didn't want to do it he decided not to do it and because he's Kyrie Irving and because he's a superstar he has the leeway to be able to do that sometimes that other guys don't have it's really not any deeper than that to well, me I mean, and, and a lot of the reaction to him is very uh my my buddy Eric Gunderson said this on the podcast that he and I both uh do together but it's it's very it's very a lot of the reaction of like people either media or media adjacent who are like caping for Kyrie on this whole thing. It's very hope he sees this, bro. It's very like, you know, I think you're really interesting. Do an exclusive interview with me now because I'm not like these other media members who are dismissing you. As I said many times on Twitter, my big my big objection to Kyrie not doing the media was the way he was doing this left his teammates out high and dry because right. ultimately they're the ones having to answer questions, not even about Kyrie, but just answer questions, period. Right. And you're supposed to be a franchise face. You're supposed to be a leader. Like, forget the idea that this is what you're paid to do. Like, move that part to the side. This is part of your responsibility just as a leader. And I just think it's shitty leadership. And it's especially shitty leadership when you're doing this under the guise of this is about something, you know, larger than me or I'm trying to make some esoteric point or, you know, the pawns crap. Like, you, you don't want to do it. I also think Kyrie has this thing where he wants to be seen as this very expansive, you know, enigmatic, very outside the box thinker, you know, very different as, you know, as he's, I think, literally said, like on a different plane, which whether you agree with Kyrie's assessment of himself there or how he views himself there aside, like if that's the way he wants to be seen, okay. But if that's what you want, you have to accept the idea of being questioned for the things you're going to say, because the history of people who were expansive, outside the box, different people includes being questioned constantly. And the problem he seems to have is he wants to just throw weird crap out there and just have everybody accept it whole cloth as genius, as opposed to occasionally like, the F are you talking about, man? Well, <laughs> like, wait, and, what? And, and, and case in point, he puts out that first statement. Like he's he has not been good at even getting whatever this message across is. He puts out that first statement of saying, Hey, I'm not gonna talk to media. This is my statement, whatever. The next day, he has to have a publicist come out and clarify and say, oh, actually, you know, he didn't say he's not going to talk the whole season. He just wasn't going to talk that day. So right away, he had to have somebody clarify his point. And then he puts out the thing on Instagram with the I don't talk to pawns, that that whole thing. And then today he did his actual Zoom call. And again, he had to clarify, no, I wasn't talking about like every single time he puts out one of these statements that he puts out supposedly because he's getting misconstrued. Well, right, he then that, has that's, to clarify. that's a function of trying to sound like a deeper thinker or like, you right. know, you're kind of above it all than just saying what it is like. Yeah. You know who's not being misconstrued right now? PJ Tucker. <laughs> oh yeah, he wants to get paid, and he. We are one hundred percent clear on what PJ Tucker thinks, yeah. and you know what? PJ Tucker is a smart guy too. Yeah. I mean, he is a, a, a you know a, a really really smart guy, and is also not me. You know, he's got a conflict with his team. Is it not being confused? Yeah, I, I saw uh, Bomani Jones was on with Rich Eisen, and I think he summed up you know sort of the 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 meat of the matter when it comes to Kyrie and just. Yeah what's going on right now. It's just like, nobody can really figure out what your end game is. Like nobody can really figure out what it is you're trying to do because like, it's, do you have a point? 
Because there, there's a difference between trying to make a statement versus actually having a point. Yep. And I think Kyrie might be trying to make a statement, but I don't even know if Kyrie knows. You know what, though? I, have, I think there's one guy, Andy, who could absolutely 100% figure out what Kyrie's endgame is. Who's that? This guy. <laughs> this guy right here. <laughs> okay, so I actually uh, – one more, one more point. Look at the, the lean. L- appreciate oh, the lean and the two hands in the pockets with the thumbs out. Hey, Tillman, lift that leg for me, okay? Just uh, put that foot up against the building there, all right? That guy gets Kyrie. So one more point on the whole uh, Kyrie media thing. I think – and this is something I thought – when this whole thing first happened, when it didn't, we didn't even know when he was going to talk or if he was going to talk. This is the kind of thing between a player and a beat writer, and like the beat writers or like the local media that you have to deal with every day, that would be a lot easier to figure out if we weren't in a pandemic and this stuff wasn't all over Zoom. I remember my first year on the Bulls beat in Chicago was the 2013-14 season, and that was that was the year that Rose missed the second. Because he had the first one and then he came back and he missed like the second he missed he missed that whole year. And halfway through that season, the Bulls traded Luol Dang to the Cavs. And for like a week after the they traded Luol Dang, Joakim Noah wouldn't talk to media for like a week because he was so upset about the trade because Luol Dang was his best friend. And because we all kind of had the relationship with Joe and we kind of knew like, look, this was somebody he was really close to. He needs a few days to process, not to, you know what happened with the trade and, you know, he doesn't want to talk for a few days. Okay. That's fine. And we all just kind of were willing to give him space to do that. And then after about a week, we ended up going to PR and being like, okay, you know, he does have to talk at some point or we're going to complain to the league. And then he talked and it was great. And then everything that was fine after that, if this was all in person and these beat writers were actually able to develop the kind of relationship with Kyrie where it's like, okay, he's just kind of in one of these moods right now. He doesn't want to talk. Fine. We'll talk to him in two days, but because it's all just, you know, being put out in a press release uh, and then, you know, maybe we'll get a zoom call with him where none of us are going to be in the same room as him. It's a lot harder to kind of figure out where each other's coming from. And I think that's contributed to a lot of this also. Yeah. It's just, and it's, it's, he's not, the world is filled with imperfect messengers for legitimate messages. He's not wrong that the, Oh, the NBA media or media generally, you know, the, the aggregators and the people take headlines and they they want to they take stuff out of context. And, I don't think he's wrong. I just think this particular guy is not the guy to be making the argument. And even he's like an imperfect messenger on some of the social justice stuff, which it is great. You know what he did with the WNBA players giving you yes. know donating their salaries and you know the stuff that he's done with indigenous peoples. Like there's all this great stuff that he does in those realms. But if you want to like talk about NBA players who are you know, doing that kind of stuff and not also posting Illuminati stuff on Instagram. It, it, There's it, so many it, other guys. Like, like I would like so much be more interested in listening to like what Jalen Brown has to say about like, it, just, it gets to, it gets to how people like we are. The other thing that we have to, that we do is that, you know, we, we insist on, on somebody being all of one thing or all of right. another, you know, like you can't be flawed over here and, you know, correct over here and admirable in this place. And so, you know, you are, you know, bad in this, you know, being a little bit bad means you're all bad being, you know, mostly good means you're all like, and so somebody like Kyrie 
who does great stuff. Everybody points to it rightly. Well, look what he was doing when you're not paying attention to this stuff. I feel and like I, he does I'm get sure, credit for that stuff, though. I think he does, but it gets overshadowed by the other things because, you know, the other stuff matters, too. It's Which, again, he brings on himself. I don't think he's being unfairly persecuted. In fact, if anything, I think Kyrie gets a softer treatment than a lot of people do. When Dwight Howard would move around his first stint with the Lakers, would, like, walk around, like talking about, you know, shots and, and all that stuff and hold the box score and kind of hint at questions about, you know, whether the Lakers really, you know, with, you know, who's going to play with Kobe and like what that's going to look like as a superstar playing. He, some of the questions he was asking were really legitimate and very uncomfortable. And he was 1000% the wrong guy to be asking them, particularly then. And so, like it, again, imperfect messengers for legitimate messages is something that that's not limited to sports by any by any stretch. And I mean, good lord, I think Kyrie falls into that category. Yeah, it's I. I mean, I can't imagine how awkward the Kobe Dwight stuff was to be. It was very around. awkward. It was that, very awkward. That team was very very uh, tense. It was to be not a happy. <laughs> I kind of getting similar vibes with this Nets team. I could not be more out on this Nets team as title contenders. Me too. We, have- we, we had Nikias Duncan on, um, like, you know, on our podcast. Oh, a couple weeks ago, and he was 100% based in a lot of ways, defense and what you're talking about. The vibes. The vibes are all wrong. Like, and I, I'm going to give, I'm even going to give Durant the benefit of the doubt that he's going to be back and be fine from the torn Achilles. We're still, we still have to pencil in Kyrie missing like 20 or 30 games because he always misses at least that much time with something. And like they have all these other guys who, you know, you don't know what their role is. Like the, the, the whole Jared Allen, DeAndre Jordan thing is weird where part of why Kenny Atkinson got fired was because he was not willing to start DeAndre because Jared Allen is a better player than him at this point, but DeAndre is buddies with Katie and Kyrie, and he was part of the package deal of going there. How is Steve Nash, who got this job because Kevin Durant wanted him, going to be able to push back at that? And then, you know, who, he, he, the other question, I mean, the question, I was talking about this with somebody, who is the adult in the room on this team? And it can't be a coach. Like, it can't be Mike D'Antoni, because he's an assistant coach. He doesn't have the same credibility. The head coach, again, got the job because Kevin Durant wanted him. The adult is not Durant. Wow. It's not Kyrie. It's not DeAndre because he's just like their buddy who was part of the package deal. And then anybody else down below on the roster, like I'm, I'm is, pulling up their roster now. Like that's all, a, that's a fascinating way to ask the question. Because, because, Spencer like, Dinwiddie's knowledge of Bitcoin makes I, him an I was adult. Just say, Spencer Dinwiddie is way too into Bitcoin for me to really be looking. I mean, at he's him he's an adult show. in the room that I think he's got a lot of adult things going on that 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 the rest of us aren't considering. But I don't know if that helps in this. Are, are you Kyrie haven't bought bond? Because like I could see Kyrie being like a big Bitcoin guy too. Okay, okay. The, this is I, Kyrie's I probably the wrong kind of Bitcoin. Kyrie's I don't the remember guy buying I, the, the weird Bitcoin. I don't remember who we talked about this before, but it came up on a different late night happy hour. And like with Dinwiddie, I don't understand Bitcoin, and I'm convinced that nobody understands it. So when he was insisting on his contract being paid all in Bitcoin, like my reaction was. Spencer Dinwiddie either understands Bitcoin like in the 99.7% percentile of the entire world or thinks he understands 
Bitcoin in the 99.7 percentile of the world. Like there is no in between. He either really understands what this is or he has no idea. And the Nets just did him. I believe he, I believe in Spencer Dinwiddie's understanding of Bitcoin. Uh, Jeff Green, could he be the adult in the room? But at that point, he's like, you're not going to look at like the fourth, like I'm, the like eighth or ninth guy on the roster. Well, and like the just, guy that everybody's going to, it has, it has to be one of the stars. I just not, picked him because he's the oldest. I mean, Jeff Green's a great guy. I've had nothing but no, positive. Sure. He's a respected veteran. He's a good dude. There's a reason teams keep keep yeah. bringing him in. Yeah, and I just, but again, you're, when you're when you're getting down to like the eighth or ninth guy on the roster as somebody who might be the adult in the room, that's kind of my point. Like, and even though, like, yeah, Mike D'Antoni is the most accomplished coach that they have, but again, he's the assistant coach. He's not the head coach. He doesn't have the authority that. Okay. A head coach here's a here's a question and i and i'm really asking this because i i've never met i've never met him so i've no idea durant, uh, in there and i just th- th- again you're getting to the like if durant is the adult in the room given you know well, i i've never met him so i don't know what his personality is like do you know what joe harris just got paid yeah. so he's got some status and he's almost 30 like, do you have any idea what his personality is like? Like, if he's he has a man until he's forty, he's though. been on Zach Lowe's podcast a couple times. I'm, I'm wondering, like, if maybe he's you know like a like a Derek Fisher type that even though he's not like a star, he's got a certain amount of cachet and respect, like or, or like a PJ Tucker type. Yeah, maybe. But again, you're the team is supposed to be a title contender. You're talking about, hey, maybe like the fur the fourth guy right. is going to be the. Oh, I think the lead. I think the leadership. Issue with Brooklyn, <laughs> Chasey. <laughs> I, yeah. I think the leadership question with with that team is a big one. I mean, that's why it's among the many reasons why, if I were them, I I would not touch Harden. Like the idea of adding Harden to that stew, like particularly if you keep the two stars. I don't know and what the hell that plus, looks like. Plus, let's say even let's say he wants to get traded to uh, Brooklyn. Let's say he gets traded to Brooklyn. That doesn't mean he's always going to want to be in Brooklyn. You're going to give up all whatever you have to give up to get him. Who's to say in a year he's not going to suddenly say, "Oh, I actually don't want to be here anymore. I want to go somewhere else." Yeah, it, it's it's that's the thing that that's what makes. I mean, it's one that you trade Russell Westbrook for John Wall. It's like our problem for your problem. I mean, Russell Westbrook. By much the way, John Wall looked really good. For he did, and 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 Russ is still an excellent player. He's another guy who's the size of his contract and the expectation that he might not age well has sort of you know turned it into. We were talking about Mello. Yeah, people um, kind of gone the other way on Russ, where because he makes as much money as he does, and because right, we just he was bad in the bubble. When by the way, he had COVID and he yes. had to deal with the calf thing. Like maybe he's not just bad now. No, he was an all NBA guy like last year, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. So he's really excellent at basketball. Um, but you, 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 uh, he's another one of those dudes like Harden, just to wrap that up, is just a, a very difficult guy to trade as good as he is. Um, you mentioned the Nets and that you don't buy them. All right, I'll we'll wrap here kind of on the same, almost in the same place that we started. The Lakers, hypothetical, the Lakers don't win. And it's not because AD gets hurt and LeBron gets hurt or whatever. They just somebody beats them. Who who are these teams that you think could be good enough in the end, whether the East or the West, to be that team? Because right now the Lakers are the prohibitive favorite. Oh, I would I would agree with that. I actually really like. I think maybe more than most people. I'm pretty high on Boston. For what reason? Because a I lot of people think they took steps backwards. 
or small I ones. I don't think else. they did. I, like, I know, obviously, yeah, you lose Hayward. That's bad. But like, he didn't really give them that much in the bubble because he had the injury and he was out for, you know, different things. And he was like, he was kind of a, I mean, I don't want to say he was superfluous because he's obviously a really good player, but like, I don't think losing him hurts them that much. And I also just think Tristan is so perfect for what they needed. They basically, that, that entire playoff run, I felt like they were just one big away who wasn't Enos Cantor. And, you know, what, you saw what happened in the conference finals against Miami. They couldn't do anything with Bam because they just didn't have the personnel. Like Daniel Tice basically is good. You know, he's, he's a decent, you know, center, but he's like, he can't be your only center. I think getting Tristan with, you know, he's such a good defender. He's a good rebounder. I just think that's going to be like the exact perfect thing. And then when you look at probably, uh, you know, Tatum's going to get better. Jalen's going to get better. Smart is still really solid. Like, I think Boston's going to be really good. I think Boston's going to be better than people think they are. Yeah, I think a lot of it's also, too, going to depend on Kemba and when he comes back, how he looks when he comes back. Um, But, you know. And then, honestly, I think Miami is still not really – for a team that just went to the finals, I think they are not getting the respect that – because, you know, people are still talking. You know, Milwaukee got Drew Holiday. I think that's going to make them better. I think – I'm interested in seeing how Philly looks with these new pieces that they have around Embiid and Simmons. Denver, I think, is still interesting. I do think that we're asking a little bit too much of Michael Porter to become a star right away, even though he looked really good in the bubble. I think the development is not linear in the way that it is. I do think the Clippers are going to be better than people think they're going to be just because I understand that like the jokes are what the jokes are because of the and they're they good went. that's yeah, they that's are good. part of the thing they're I, really good i think that abaca is an upgrade for them absolutely yeah. he, he he makes more sense for them yeah. than trez does i think yeah. trez does a lot of really good things for the lakers um that are important i think that um, and i said this when they when those signings happen i think montrez harrell is a better fit uh, i th- i think i think abaca is an upgrade for the Clippers over Trez, but I also think that Trez is going to be better used on the Lakers than he was. I, agree the Clippers. I mean, it, you, you know, when he was on the Clippers, he was basically besides Zubac, he was like basically their primary center. So he had to be the rim protector. He had to do all this stuff. That's kind of out of his wheelhouse. You put him on the Lakers. He's going to be playing with Anthony Davis. He just has to do the things he's good at. He just has to rebound. He has to finish dunks. He has to take charges. That's all he has to do is what he's good at. Yeah. Um, I, I think it was a really good thing. I, I think it's a really good pickup. I'm also not – I've seen people express some concern about, well, you know, his issues in the in the bubble and, you know, he's not going to be able to close games. I don't care. I think he is – I think he was brought in – Anthony Davis and right. – I think guys, he like was – LeBron, like, it becomes a little bit less of a – He was brought in, I think, for the regular season. Like, first and foremost yeah. for the regular season to help LeBron and AD not have to do as much – and I think that's a perfectly good reason, especially when you take into account the context of this season and the quick turnaround. Like, if he's not closing games, I don't care. Like, I, I don't think it's a big deal at all. It's fine. It's it, I, I think it's a good it's a yeah, good fit. And the energy that he you can even just see like what he's done, and even, it's preseason. I get it. Like, but like it, it is different. I mean, we watched eighty whatever hundred games of the Lakers last year. Like that did not exist. The, you know, the ability to have that kind of energy and actually with some skill behind it to put the ball in the basket and, and, you know, put, you know, you put a little dribble and like all that. So they, they did not have that element last year at all. And so it's going to matter. Yeah. I think Gasol I like is going to be time too. 
Yeah, they had a they had a really good offseason. Watching him pass the ball, Dwight minutes to Mark Gasol, who is not you know Mark Gasol of Memphis, but he's still pretty good. He's still like I think he's still an upgrade over those Javale Dwight minutes. And you put players like him on around really good players. Yeah, you know, like it just he showed it in Toronto. Like he could be really effective. Yeah. Um, you know, Gasol's gonna be great. This whole thing's gonna be I, I, the Lakers are really good. Um, they, they there are a lot of good teams. Lakers are better. They won the title and they got better. Yeah, and can't ask for much more than that. This was right. fun, man. This was a lot of fun. I'm glad we were able to do this. Yeah. Um, um, Sean Hyken of Bleacher Report. Uh, let's see. We we do this thing where we encourage people to sign up for the podcast. Uh, which I think we did earlier. And then we tell people tomorrow, uh, really, we'll have a fun interview. David Hill, gambler and uh, host of a uh, podcast on The Ringer about gamblers, is going to join us. Really cool. Really cool podcast. Really interesting thing. Like some really cool parallels as well to kind of what we consider to be conventional sports that um, I want to get into with him, you know, around this gambling thing. Uh, Jordan Rodriguez, we're going to do football on. Um, Wednesday night, and then great guests at the end of the week, Brian Curtis and uh, Claire Deloon, talking uh, all kinds of stuff. So uh, thanks again, Sean. This was fun. Sean Hyken, Bleacher Report, at Hyken. Check him out. And uh, we will see everybody tomorrow. Donk you, Nederland. <laughs>